Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be hearing from drum manufacturer William Ludwig II. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right. So thanks for joining us. I always have such a hard time getting through those intros without giggling or laughing. So you did a um, good job this time. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. It was really hard. I had to close my eyes to focus. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be hearing an interview from William Ludwig II. Bio, go. We are so thrilled about this. I mean, to me, collecting these interviews for the NAM Oral History Program really meant that you needed to get some of the quintessential company icons. And for sure, if uh, you are a percussionist, and even if you aren't, you are familiar with the name Ludwig. So the fact that we were able to talk to the founder's son, who ran the business for many, many years, known often as uh, the chief, Uh, William F. Ludwig really had a wonderful career and was a great mentor to many people. Uh, His uh, lifespan was uh, 1916 to 2008, and we were lucky to interview him in July of 2002 for this interview. So uh, throughout the podcast today, we'll talk a little bit about his contributions as well as some of the people he's talking about during his interview and, of course, some of the history of that famous company. So maybe we can just start off right away. Uh, What's the first segment we're going to hear, Mike? We're going to hear about where his father got his passion for music. And then we're going to hear William Ludwig II's passion. Um, And then he's going to be talking about um, the museum where this interview is taking place, which is actually just his house. But he has so much stuff. It's like a museum. Your book was very interesting. And some of this may be... part of a repeat, but I'd like to expand on some of the ideas and thoughts that you had in there. Thank you. One of them was um, your father really did have a great love and passion for the music products industry. What is your thought as to where he got that from? Gee, I don't know. He, as he says in his book, booklet, my life at the drums, a passing parade, political parade, attracted his attention when he was eight. And he followed the drummers in the Illinois National Guard Drumming People Corps all the way to the end of the march, the parade. And he asked to meet the drum instructor Catlin was his name, and he he wrote it down and he went back and and told his father, I don't like the violin, I don't like the piano, I haven't been studying it, I've been skipping lessons, but I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll really study hard if you get me a drum and drum lessons with John Catlin. 
And by this time, his father was desperate. You know how you get when you're dealing with your offspring sometimes and they don't do right according to the way you feel. You get desperate. And so his father bought him a drum, he said, for $4 and a pair of sticks and brought it home. And he got him lessons with John Catlin. And he loved it. He loved it over the violin and the piano. And it qualified for his father's definition of an instrument which was not windblown because his father had orthodontic problems. And when you're a brass player and you have problems with your mouth, your embouchure, your teeth, you're done, out of business. And thus, the violin and the piano was a preparatory instrument of instruction which qualified as non-wind. And so, when my father fell in love with that drum corps and the drums, that qualified as non-wind. Mm. And so he, he became lost to the brass business of the world as well as the fiddle business <laughs> right there and then and became a drummer. A love which he never lost until the day he expired yesterday in 73. Now you figure how long ago that was. 30 years or something like that. Mm. He used to say when I visited him in his last illness in the hospital, why aren't you at the plant? But I never had that passion. <laughs> I liked the factory and I liked the drums, but not that much. So 10 years later, I sold the company to Selmer Company. And this museum was down at the factory. Hmm. All of these drums and the pedals over there, I had to provide for. So I had shelving constructed hmm. and glass so that the light would flow through and rope drums as well as rod drums, rod tension drums are shown behind me in a national, natural progression. So what I really like about this interview, in addition to the fact that Mr. Ludwig was a very charming and uh, smart individual, is the, the whole idea of the oral history, passing down the history from one generation to another. And here was a guy who had a real pulse of his father, his grandfather, and the history of his uh his own family as well as the development of the company and the growth of the products that they represented. So it was really a true honor for me to hang out at his home in uh, the north part of Chicago, 2002. And uh, without further ado, uh, I thought maybe we could jump right back into talking a little bit about him reflecting on his grandfather. What do you remember about your grandfather? I never knew him. He, he died young, mm. 
in the old country, my life expectancy then was low. And so I never knew him. He died at the age of 54. Mm. He was trombone player. Oh. And he played, he was drafted, as everybody was and still is in Germany, for two years of service. And he hated military service because he found it cruel. The sergeants were mean. And uh, he decided to move to America to escape the draft, little knowing that his grandson would get drafted years later. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. Sort of ironic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dad, Granddad. <laughs> What were, um, what do you think were some of the driving forces behind uh, your father um, pursuing a, a career in drums? I mean, obviously he had a passion for it, but it seems to me that there had to have been something that uh, enabled his thinking along the ways of being uh, a manufacturer versus a player. The drums were very poor in those days. There were no drum companies. They were small individuals run by a drummer with three or four helpers. Mm -hmm. Most of the drums were rope tension. At the advent in the turn of the century of rod tension drums, he started to get interested in the new tensioning system and the new way to play the bass drum other than hitting it with a stick. So he dreamed of a fast floor pedal so that the drummer could play both drums, snare drum and bass drum and cymbals simultaneously. Now he never said or claimed he invented the pedal. His pedal was better. He had a natural ability to understand elementary engineering. But nothing much would have ever happened with his company called Ludwig and Ludwig. That's his brother, Theobald, my uncle, and my father. If my father's sister, Elizabeth, hadn't fallen in love and married an engineer. The engineer was Robert C. Danley, chief engineer, international harvester. It was a big deal in those days. So there's quite a bit of history about uh, the different generations in the Ludwig family and kind of how they came to be and find their way through establishing the Ludwig Drum Company and their passion, which is really great to hear. And it's it's amazing that Dan worked so hard to capture these stories before they're lost. Um, and so now we're going to hear William Ludwig II talking about how the first pedal came to be in the start of the business, as well as he's going to be describing the first factory and his love of engineering, as well as the diversity of original products and expansion of the business. 
What's really awesome to me about this is that sort of the quintessential story of, of Ludwig was based on that one first product in 1909, which was the bass drum pedal. And uh, I'd love to get Mike's uh, thoughts as a drummer uh, a little bit about the importance, obviously, of the bass drum. But just to kind of set it in uh, motion, his, his father, who started the company, was a vaudevillian and a circus drummer. And back then, as uh, Mr. Ludwig describes, his dad didn't actually have the opportunity to sit down. Most of the time, those drummers were running from one sound effect and one kettle drum to another. So the, the concept of a bass drum pedal allowed the drummer to sit down for the first time and have that kit, the, the modern drum kit that we know today, sort of build up around them and get set up around them. And obviously, to use your foot for the first time effectively. So um, this was a big, huge advancement in, um, in percussion and, of course, in the, in the product line that really established this company. Mike, what are your thoughts about just the use and importance of the bass drum pedal? Well, it's something that you don't really think of too much because it's just kind of expected nowadays that every kit has a bass drum pedal. I mean, how else would you play the bass drum? But back (laughs) in the day, you know, they weren't thinking like that yet. It was all separate drums. And when this design came out, it was was a breakthrough concept. I mean, um, and the design has pretty much stayed the same throughout the years. Um, And we're going to get to talking about the Speed King pedal in a little while, but... Ludwig was really the company that um, developed the bass drum pedal to be what it is today, and it's and it's I think it's going to live on forever. I mean, unless someone else comes up with a better design, but I don't really see any other designs really taking that one over. One of their outings, my father showed Danley his first pedal, and. Robert Danley said, that's no way to make a pedal. It was made out of wood. All the parts, everything were wood. And my father was absolutely enthralled with Danley's description of how to make a pedal. And Danley said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make a thousand castings. That's the footboard a thousand castings of the heel plate and a thousand castings of the post to hold the entire assembly. My father said, I can't pay you. And Danley said, all right, I still have to have mass production to make it pay, so I'll do it out of my own pocket and I'll sell you the pedals 12 at a time as you sell them from the drum shop. It's a nice, nice brother-in-law, huh? Mm. And that's how the business got started. And then it grew by leaps and bounds. No one could foresee the eagerness with which drummers bought these pedals. And that's where the money came to make the drum, the first drum. And then they needed a factory building, so they rented and then bought an old building on the northwest side of Chicago. And Chicago was the ideal place to have a drum business because you need skins, calf skins, top and bottom in those days. And the stockyards was mighty in Chicago. 
I don't know how many tens of thousands of animals were slaughtered a week or a month, but it was immense. And that's where the fine Ludwig heads came from that put the company on top of the world. Mm. <sighs> <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> it's sort of a, it's an amazing story, even as you look back, it must amaze you at how... It I'm grew. amazed, yes, it, it is. But engineering became the light of my life, and uh, I always insisted on top engineers. We had research engineer, product engineer, manufacturing engineer, that's those that specialize in making machinery to make the production, and they all had individual offices. I saw to that, built buildings for them because engineering is the way to stay abreast, if not ahead, of the competition. Now, engineering is taking place in other countries, even. Mm. They're making good drums over there. We still make good drums in this country, too. Just out of curiosity, what was the uh, the reason of um, uh, the diversity in products in addition to um, drums at the beginning? Well, my father stopped at just drums, but I looked at it as all percussion, total percussion. Mm. Everything you hit, even a piano, is a percussion instrument. And so part of the percussion section was missing. We made the drums, we made the timpani, but we, I, th I felt we needed to make marimbas and xylophones and bells. And I had a wonderful educational director named Dick Shorey on board in my company, and he pointed out the Musser Company, which was new company, started up after World War II, led by Claire Omar Musser. He's probably in your museum. And Mr. Musser started a new company, which 20 years later I bought from the then present owner, Dick Richardson, and folded it into, so to speak, WFL Drum Company, and then bought my name back from Kahn and became Ludwig Industries. And with that purchase, we got a line of educational percussion instruments, childcraft, you might say, and the thought there was to introduce the very young people to Ludwig at an early age and thus have them throughout their life on Ludwig. And branched out into buying out our advertising agency and a few other 
companies. It's all in the biography I wrote mm -hmm. until it got to be pretty hefty company with millions and millions of dollars of billing every year and sold it just on the edge of the new global competition. So, in answer to your question, we were total percussion, not just membranic, as they call skin-headed drums. So that's uh, all about kind of the construction of the first pedal as well as engineering and everything. You can really see how William Ludwig II's mind kind of works, which is really neat. Mm -hmm. And we're going to tap into that a little bit later as well. Um, but that creates a perfect segue, segue for his him describing his passion for music as well as the uh, kind of the other side of the business that not always uh, gets discussed and that's the advertising promotion and endorsement side and how that impacts business because you can't well be very difficult to run a successful company without those components uh, so we're going to hear that as well as the people that William Ludwig II has met along the way when did um, when did your uh, interest uh, you, you said at first uh, uh, you said something along the lines of not really having the passion that your father had, but you certainly had some great um, um, contributions to the industry, certainly to the company over the years. Uh, where did you feel that your niche sort of started? Well, my father insisted on drum lessons at an early age, following in his footsteps. My mother insisted on piano lessons at age 10. And gradually, I fell in love with both the drum and the piano that way. And I became somewhat of a classical musician, even more so, I think, than my father. I bought scores, I went to concerts, and I wanted to be timpanist. And I joined the Chicago Civic Symphony Orchestra, which is a training orchestra for the young people, hoping to have a chance to be timpanist in a major orchestra. But my fate was sealed when I realized those jobs are few and far between. And there was much more activity and interest in the drum manufacturing business than there was in the performance. Today, it seems to be the opposite. Players such as Vic Firth and Herbie Brockstein turn to manufacturing when their performing career is ebbing mm. and they're out of the business. You can only play so long. I mean, I play today, but I play lousy <laughs> compared, and I wouldn't, I just played a with the local municipal band for the 4th of July, and I was horrified. These hands don't move like they used to. I'll be 86 in September, and the hands are telling me, stop, quit while you're ahead, while you're fumbling around. And so the great companies today 
seemed to be founded in the percussion industry by performers. Mm. Opposite of the way it was with my father. It's very interesting. Also, a, another thought that I had when I was reading your book was Ludwig sort of goes down in history for being really aggressive and smart in their promotions and in their advertising and their marketing. What is the relationship uh, as far as when you were involved with performers and endorsements and how important or how critical was that to the growth of the company? Well, I started out advertising and sales. The company was very small. And as it grew, I just couldn't do everything. And so I started to hire people I thought of talent, fired a few, hired some, shuffled them around just like coach on a football team would. And I got a good combination of marketing people, Dick Shorey, Jim Suri, to mention a few that come to mind. And I don't remember all of them. And kept ahead of the competition, which didn't seem interested in hiring talent that I was. And thus, my last dealing with Buddy Rich was me personally. And from then on, others in Ludwig Company handled the endorsing program. Mm. It's also rather interesting that, um, as an outsider myself looking in, you were really um, in a great position to meet some wonderful people. Oh, yeah. And some of them became very good friends of yours. Well, mostly they were good people. They were humble people like Ed Shaughnessy. It's easy for fame to sweep one's self off one's feet, and very few really top famous drummers have their head on straight after they get adulation by the tens of tens of thousands. And others like Ray Baduke, who was in a little different style of drumming, Dixieland, he was a genius in that field, was just a sweetheart that you'd love to live with. And it didn't uh, turn his psyche or his head like others. They're all different. Mostly Hollywood stars are difficult to handle because they have a lot of money, they have fame, and they, uh, they believe it. They believe they're famous, and they are. I don't know how else to say it, except some artists just turn out sweethearts and others are cranky. 
I guess that's, that's the word cranky. What I really appreciate about that segment is uh, just going back a little bit to uh, the concept of that first pedal uh, from 1909 that really established the company. Um, by the um, by, I think 1915, 1916, their catalog already had other products like timpani and um, snare drums. But neat uh, to note there in about 1911, they were already experimenting with all metal snare drums. And in fact, Mr. Ludwig was so kind to donate the very first one they ever made from 1911 to the Museum of Making Music, which is currently on display in our Carlsbad Museum. And it was really a very innovative. Um, it had all the things that a normal snare drum has, of course, but the first one that they ever made of metal really allowed them to start manufacturing things on a larger scale. And that was really the beginning of that 1916 catalog that launched many other products and not just a bass drum pedal. Uh, but that was really, I think, a quintessential moment for the growth and development of the company. And of course, it was fueled a few years later in 1920 when the company was sold to CG Con. Now they had uh, access to a lot larger factory and, and more uh, factory workers. Um, and of course, the Ludwigs focused on the WFL Drum Company in 1937, which took them through World War II. And again, coming up with very innovative products, uh, particularly the, the drum kits that most of us now know of uh, during that period of time. So fascinating stuff. I really appreciated hearing this firsthand from Mr. Ludwig and learning. And of course, gosh, walking away with the snare drum he just donated was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how am I going to get this on the plane? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next, Mike? Let's see. Next, we're going to hear William Ludwig II talking about Ray Baduke. Uh, Dixieland, and then the evolution of the hi-hat. Tell me a little bit more about Ray. I'd like to know what kind of guy he was. He was soft-spoken. He had a New Orleans drawl I loved. He always said, hey, how you doing? How's everything? Every little thing. And he got a, a great idea. He had, always had great ideas for drums. Why don't we try this? And there, therefore, the pictures in the book of the drum company, Ray was New Orleans man and uh, just a sweetheart. Soft-spoken and happily married. Can't think of his spouse's name right now, childless. Unfortunately, but totally wrapped up in his music. Wonderful man. Loved Dixieland, didn't he? Hey, Dixieland, all the way. <laughs> Is that where you get some of your interest from, Dixieland? Yeah, whenever I hear summertime, I get teary-eyed. I think of Ray Baduke mm. and Bob Crosby. They used to play the Blackhawk Restaurant down in the lobe on the, near the corner of Randolph and facing Wabash Avenue, right under the L tracks. It's now a dress shop. <laughs> I can't go by there without looking in that door. It was wonderful. 
and they played matinees Sunday afternoons and invited the kids in mostly from the northern and western suburbs. And there was a particular gang of them from Winnetka, and that is the basis of the song that Ray Composer whistled, Big Noise from Winnetka, that he played with Bob Haggard. Mm. Those were happy days. Now there's not much live music left, and what there is of it is hard rock in a place called the Blue Rock Cafe. Mm. Next. Did he, uh, did Ray, um, what was his involvement? Uh, I know this is more of a Zildjian question, but what were his um, involvement with the splash symbol? We sort of have conflicting stories about that. The, uh, you call it the squash symbol. I've never heard that name, but I know where, where you're coming from. That's the uh, floor pedal, floor pedal. That was the evolution of the hi-hat. A Dixieland drummer in New Orleans named Vic Burton invented the low boy hi-hat pedal. There wasn't a hi-hat pedal, low boy squash pedal, that's a good name. And uh, we also called it snowshoe pedal because it was made of wood, like two snowshoes facing one another with the symbols facing one another on the end. And Vic Burton told me he often wondered why his left foot was never used in Dixieland or any type of dance drumming music. It's as if it would wither away. So he was thinking of a use for the left foot and dreamed up the low boy. It wasn't until two years later that Bill Mather, uh, a bit of a mechanic, running a drum shop in New York City, one of the very first drum shops in the world, thought of putting uh, an extension on it to bring that hi-hat up. Then it became known as a hi-hat. Literally, hi-hat comes from the shape of the symbols that were first used. They look like a hat or cap. And Bill Mather showed his design to Barney Warburg, Warburg and Og. I think they displayed two at NAMM shows for a long time. They were in Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm. And that's the way the smash symbol, pedal, or low boy or snowshoe developed. Vic Burton took out a patent. So as William Ludwig uh, II is talking about um, Ray Baduke, I just wanted to 
mentioned that uh, Mr. Baduk's lifespan was uh, 1906 to 1988, and probably best known for drumming on the bandstand with people like Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey, and as a member of the Bobcats, uh, Bob Crosby's orchestra. He uh, is very famous for a 1938 recording that was a big hit called The Big Noise from Winnetka, where he's playing drums and Bob Haggart is playing the bass. And at one point, Ray actually takes his sticks and starts playing on the bass, which is kind of cool, the stand-up bass, while Bob is uh, doing the, the fingering of the chords. Fun stuff. So that was his career, and uh, obviously he hooked up with the Ludwig folks and helped them uh, kind of uh, test out equipment and give ideas about, you know, this is, this is how this would work better on the road and, you know, ideas and concepts that only a musician might be able to provide a manufacturer. So that little um, exchange led to a very long relationship and friendship between the two, which I thought was uh, a fantastic element that is uh, documented here in this interview as well. And just another interesting note about Mr. Baduk's career, he uh, published two uh, method books. Um, in 1936, he had a thing called Dixieland Drumming and then Progressive Drum Rhythms uh, a few years later in 1940, uh, the latter of which is still actually being published, which tells you the longevity of his thoughts and ideas of that method. So now on to another concept that I know Mike wanted to talk a little bit about, and that is the Speed King pedal and its development. Well, the Speed King really changed the game when it came to bass drum pedals, and um, there are drummers today that still play Speed Kings. Um, it, it really, it was the modern design of a bass drum pedal. It had the ball bearings, it had a chain, and it was just more robust, a little bit more durable, and it allowed you to play the bass drum so much faster than you could with the earlier designs of the bass drum pedal or before bass drum pedals even were a thing. So it really changed the game for uh, drummers. So let's go back to William F. Ludwig II's uh, 2002 NAM oral history interview and hear his thoughts on the Speed King pedal. It's sort of interesting to see the uh, evolution of some of the other um, great innovations, particularly the ones that uh, your company had involvement, like the Speed King. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, the Speed King pedal was actually developed by the foreman of our assembly department named Walter Huckstead. He brought it to us one day in its completed form. That's unusual. And with a few modif modifications, we started building it. We paid him a royalty, of course, and we were very grateful to get it. The idea of the Speed King was to bury the springs, get the springs out of the way so they couldn't be scraped or stretched by the foot. And it had a long run. It lasted 50 or 60 years before it slowly died out, but it's still being manufactured by the Selma Company. And I don't see many of them around anymore, but then I don't get out anymore either. <laughs> were, were you all surprised at the popularity of it? Yes, very, very surprised. It was totally revolutionary. 
but unpatentable. You have to really have a unique idea to get a patent. And a patent is no good unless it's been challenged in court. And there are five basic inventions, I might add, if I may, in my opinion, in the drum industry, in which I mention in my clinics. The number one is the bass drum pedal. That was an overhead pedal, and that was first invented by a gentleman in 1888. And then came separate tension, enabling the drummer the tension, the batter head separately from the snare head. That was a tremendous advancement. That was patentable. And uh, number three in my hit parade of inventions is a wire brush, which strangely enough was patented by two men who patented as a fly killer. The patent reads, Fly Killer. And it was sold individually in hardware stores until drummers discovered they could scrape it on the calf head and pick up the trembling of the snares on the snare head and make a pleasant sound. They started to buy two. And I suppose hardware dealers gave them an argument when they ordered two. They'd say, Mr. You, they probably, I'm surmising this because it was about the time I was born that this patent was issued. <laughs> Mr. You don't need two of these. One is all you need to kill a fly. <laughs> <laughs> and the wires telescoped into a tube so you could slip it into your pocket and take it on a suburban train to work with you and kill flies. <laughs> Apparently before the year of screens on trains. <laughs> and uh, I left one out. Oh, throw off strainer. The ability to throw the snares off quickly mm. for a tom-tom effect. Before the throw off strainer was developed, my father and Robert Danley had a big part of that. The drummer had to reach under the drum with his left hand and grab the snares and pull them away and jam the stick with his right hand between the snares and the head for a quick tom-tom effect. Hmm. This played hell with the wires of the snares, of course but it was the only way you could get a quick change from snare sound to tom-tom sound. Mm. So those were real inventions. Everything after that is just an add-on. All the strainers, all the separate tension designs and lugs uh, were add-ons, but fundamental Patents are few and far between now.
Tell me a little bit about Cecil Stroop. Cecil Stroop was the engineer for the Lady Manufacturing Company in Indianapolis. They were the arch rival of Ludwig and Ludwig. U.G. Leedy, named after Ulysses Grant, the general, as was the custom in those days, was a drummer in Indianapolis who played every day full shows, not only supplying sound effects for the silent pictures, but also played vaudeville. One wonders if he ever had a rest stop. Hmm. He played straight through eight shows a day, wow. starting in the afternoon shortly after lunch and right through dinner. And he specializes in sound effects. And he had the good fortune to come across a wizard of an engineer, Cecil Stroop, who became Leedy's chief engineer, the arch rival of Ludwig and Ludwig and R.C. Danley. And after U.G. Leedy sold his company to the C.G. Kahn Company, manufacturers of band instruments in Elkhart, Indiana, Stroop teamed up with one of the five sons of Leedy and formed a new company called LNS, Leedy and Stroop, which only lasted a couple of years because it was undercapitalized. Mm. And we heard the company was finished. My father got on the phone and contacted Cecil Stroop and offered him the job of chief engineer of Ludwig in Chicago. And that would meant moving to Chicago. Cecil said, well, how about my moving expenses? My father said, we'll pay that. He was that good. Mm -hmm. And he located in Chicago and worked for many years for us. He was the kind of a fella I loved being around because all you had to do was sketch a product with your hands. I called it air design, designing in air. And he would come back in a few hours with a working model. Mm. We were lucky. Mm. After Cecil Stroop, we never had a brilliant engineer like Danley or Stroop. Mm. It was tough. It was like a revolving door. Engineers are the toughest talent to hire in the whole world. Okay, that was uh, William F. Ludwig from his 2002 NAM Oral History interview. And I just wanted to mention there were a couple of other people uh, in the Ludwig family that we have been lucky enough to interview over the years. His daughter, Brooke, in 2009, and her husband, Bill Crowden, who had a very illustrious career in the progressive world, not only having his own drum shop, working at Frank's Music in Chicago, but also being a member of the Ludwig family and representing them over the years. Uh, he was also interviewed in 2009. Unfortunately, we lost him in, in 2013. Uh, he was a heck of a guy, and I was really very honored to uh, have been his friend. I also wanted to mention that uh, William F. Ludwig II's son, 
B3, as he's sometimes called, uh, was also interviewed a couple of times for the NAM Oral History Program in 2009 and 17. And you can check out his web clips online. And Mike, where would they find those? You'd find all of these web clips and some full interviews at www.nam, that's N-A-M-M dot org slash library. So the next segment is a very near and dear one to many of us in the music products industry, and that is the relationship between the Ludwig Company and those four lads from across the pond, the Beatles. And this is quite the story. I don't really want to spoil any of it, but... Yeah, I was hesitant too. Yeah. Let's let him tell it. <laughs> well, one of the things that we have on display in the museum, um, we'd love to have your thoughts on, I know you also talk about in your book, is... Um, the influence of these uh, these guys that call themselves the Beatles. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your first recollection of the Beatles were. Well, of course, I was a classicist, as I outlined earlier, and I did not belong to that generation that screamed and hollered and appointed, applauded that kind of music but I was simply stunned when they were featured on the Ed Sullivan Show with our drums and above all with our name on the head. Now we had put the name Ludwig on the head years before when Buddy Rich was a child star, but very discreetly at the bottom of the bass drum. And here Ringo Starr had the name Ludwig at the top, and that was a great boost for us in sales. Immediately, everybody wanted a Ringo Star, Ringo set in this country. We had to add a second shift, and for three and a half years, we ran flat out, nothing but Beatles sets. We didn't even pause to make school drums during that period. Hmm. But as fast as it started, as booms generally do, it ended. And it was a wild era, populated by the young. That was the young era. Kids had bands in their garage. I even had a band in the next room over here in my own house. My son was a Beatle fan, and he had his friends come over and they raised the roof in this house. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. Had you ever seen anything like that in the industry before? No, never. Never and never since. Hmm. The other part of the question is, was there a, a conflict between putting the name next to the Ludwig name? No, no. Ringo wanted the Ludwig name on the head so he could let his friends know that he was playing a foreign set of drums. Hmm. And one has to realize that in those days, if you bought a MG, that's a little English car, you put it out in your driveway and never put it in your garage so all the neighbors could see. And that was behind the feeling Ringo said he had about 
insisting that our name first be painted and then decaled on the front head. He wanted everybody to know he was important enough to have a drum set made in America, mm. 3,000 miles away. And every, everybody followed it. It was amazing to me and my father and my mother and my whole family. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Hmm. What, what do you think, uh, in your own thoughts, um, is the most significant contributions that uh, your father has made? Well, the separate tension idea and the throw-off. While neither was his invention, he built on it. He built better with the help of Robert Danley. And also pedal tune timpani. He was a timpanist himself with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra for a season back in 1911 and 12. And he knew how difficult it was to change pitch manually by turning screws. You could do it quickly. And most music of the Romantic period was written for Timothy, two notes. But Wagner, Berlioz, and more modern composers, especially Stravinsky, wrote Quick Changes, it's called. And the Timpanist had to have four drums, sometimes five, to play those parts. My father provided, with the aid of Robert Danley, a tuning device so you could have quick changes on two timpani. And this was a hit with all the schools. So that's just a really cool story. I mean... I mean, you can't really get any right. closer to the action than, than right. that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, other than talking to maybe one of the guys when they were on the Ed Sullivan stage. Right, yeah. But... I guess there's still 50% chance that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, I mean, it's still today, you know, the Beatles are just known for playing Ludwig's. Ringo is just, when you see a drum set with a Beatles logo on it, it's always a Ludwig. It's just, you know, it's how it is. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take a pause here, if you guys didn't mind, um, just to give a little shout out in honor of uh, one of our esteemed volunteers, uh, at the Museum of Making Music and part of the NAM family for all of his work and dedication for many years for the NAM Oral History Program, and that was Tony Schmidt. Uh, he was born in 1930, and we lost him in 2011. And back in 2002, I was able to do an interview about his life and about his passion for music. He um, he wasn't a musician, but he loved music. He was a huge fan of Duke Ellington, and he dedicated a lot of his hours, I would say thousands of hours, in retirement to the museum and the, the NAM Oral History Program. And so on my very first trip to Chicago as part of the oral history, I asked Tony to come along with me, and that was uh, the result of that effort was the uh, interview that we're listening to from uh, William F. Ludwig II uh, that we conducted that trip. 
And it was a really important trip for us. It was uh, the beginning, really, of realizing that there was an awful lot of folks in our industry who no longer make it to the NAM show. And that if we really want to take this seriously, we need to get out and go and find those folks. And so um, all I had to do was use this interview as an example to the NAM board and the wonderful folks who have always supported this program. And I'm very proud of that. And I think Tony was particularly proud of that, too. So a shout out to him and in, in, uh, in memory of him, please. So as we continue, what's our next segment? We're going to be hearing more specifically about William Ludwig II's contributions um, to the industry and the company, as well as light kits, and he's going to round out talking about NAM shows. What were you pleased with with your contributions? Gee, I never thought of it like that. I guess... Enlarging the facilities, I was always for expansion. My father was overly cautious, and I greeted new materials such as plexiglass with enthusiasm, and we had a long run of producing tens and tens of thousands of plexiglass drums in all the colors and then multicolored plexiglass drums. I'd say my greatest contribution to Ludwig was my willingness to adopt new materials and changing times. Hmm. And even the clear drums, was that uh, under your uh, yeah, supervision? Yeah. How did yeah. that come about? Well, a fellow named Zico's in Kansas City made the first clear plexiglass set, but he was not a manufacturer. So I had my gang contact the nearest plexiglass distributor, and we got into bending it, heating it, bending it, and gluing, gluing it together, and we learned the business. Mm. And then we... I said, let's get into all the colors there are and expand the market. And then I got engineering working on putting various colors of plexiglass together, gluing it. That was hard mm. to do. And built a four-story addition to the factory wow. to produce them. It was quite an undertaking. Yeah. I did hear uh, conflicting stories about those uh, light kits, those kits that lit up. And Tivoli, yeah. Well, I, went, I wanted to go a step further. I wanted to lift the drummer out of the background and, and concentrate on him his appearance. And so I put engineering to work on lighted drums. And we found a company called Lexan in California, Southern California, which made Lexan tubes with little low wattage bulbs in them 
as curtains hmm. and also in banks to show customers where to walk to whichever teller was vacant. And now they're all over except didn't work in drums because drums are portable and they get handled pretty roughly. And I was absolutely obsessed with getting the drummer out in front. Unfortunately, a lot of leaders didn't like that. I didn't know that I was running into opposition from the leaders of the combos and the leaders, the pianists would be the leader. He'd say, hey, this is my trio, not his trio. Turn the lights off. <laughs> so it was a flop. Lost a lot of money. That one on me. <laughs> Let me just ask you uh, in uh, your thoughts about uh, NAM, the NAM shows. How important was that for you guys? Oh, absolutely vital. Couldn't couldn't have survived without it. My first NAM show was 1937 in New, <coughs> excuse me, New York City. And certainly, I was new in the business. My first year. And it was in the Hotel New Yorker. They were all exhibits were in hotel rooms. The beds had been stacked in closets and in the bathrooms. Very often we met and wrote orders with the customer sitting on the toilet and me sitting on cartons in the bathtub. <laughs> Private. The rooms were hot. This is pre-air conditioning. All through the latter 30s, the show alternated. There's one year in Chicago, one year in New York. Then it got to be two years in New York and one year in Chicago. And finally, years later, McCormick Place was built and we moved to McCormick Place. That, that was a big step. But we couldn't ever not display at NAM. Build our business through NAM. It was a place to meet everybody once a year. Yeah. I miss it, but I'm old, over the hill. <laughs> and I recognize it, and I'm over that hill. <laughs> I heard stories about how accessible people were too. I, I've heard lots of stories about um, people's favorite memory of their first NAM show was meeting your father, just walking down the aisle and seeing him, or walking down the aisle and, and seeing Hallways. Him. Yeah. 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 It was a lot different, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. The hotel rooms had a great disadvantage. They were small, cramped spaces, low ceilings. You couldn't put up, put up much of a display. But the worst feature was the fact 
you'd be talking to a key dealer and his competitor would come in. <laughs> and that was always embarrassing. It still is embarrassing at today's dam, but people understand it now more. Okay, so I believe that now concludes our interview with William F. Ludwig from the NAM Oral History Interview Program. Thank you all very much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.